What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome back. It is Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to get that question answered for you on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Michael McCall, our producer today, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Rich Jesse is handling social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there even as we speak. All you have to do is put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and we're off to the races. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How was your weekend? You know, it was uh, it was nice. It was nice. It was restful. I'm hoping you did not labor on Labor Day. Um, well, you know, not beyond the normal domestics. Ah, can't really get around that, can you? But there's a when you have the number of people in your household <laughs> that I have, the domestics are a considerable amount of labor. And off we go. Here's an email to lead us off. This is from Brian. How do I explain original sin from Scripture to satisfy Bible alone Christians? Yeah, thanks. So I will point out to begin with that historically, Protestants who claim to believe in the Bible alone have always been real vociferous defenders of a doctrine of original sin. It's not exactly the Catholic doctrine, but they're big believers in original sin, and it's in their confessions of faith, whether Lutheran or Reformed. There are some Protestants who might deny the doctrine, but they'd be a very small minority. So to even have to have the conversation is a bit surprising to me. Mm. Um, But the classic text on original sin, of course, is Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12 and following. I won't read the whole thing, but this is the text that reads, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, right? Um, and uh, uh, St. Augustine, who really formulated the doctrine of original sin, commenting on that text in, in Latin where we read, in quo omnis peccaverunt, which could be translated, in whom all have sinned. Right? Mm. So Augustine read that and said, okay, we'll all have sinned in Adam. And that was, of course, seemed to be more strongly employed by the Latin translation of the text than by the original Greek, which is why uh, the doctrine was formulated the way it was in Latin Christianity more so than in Eastern Christianity. But nevertheless, I would say the larger context of Scripture is that there is a parallelism between our death in Adam and our resurrection in Jesus, and what we lost in Adam is restored to us in Christ, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. And so the way the Church now understands original sin is that formally— Original sin consists in the privation of that original justice, that that conformity to God's uh, image and likeness that was uh, ours in the Garden of Eden, ours in creation by grace, um, and uh, the state in which we now live, which is one where you come into the world and you you don't automatically have that orientation to God. The will is not automatically zeroed in on the divine will, but we're infected by concupiscence and so forth. 
um, is, uh, is what we mean by original sin. Now, uh, the Church has, as it's clarified the doctrine through the centuries, has made a few refinements, if you will, specifications. Uh, one of them, we find this in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is that original sin is not actual sin. Uh, so it's not imputable as personal guilt. So, you know, you don't, you don't look at a baby who's just come forth from the wound and look at that child and say, ah, well, you know, you deserve eternal damnation because of the sin of Adam. No, we don't draw that conclusion. Uh, we would say that the child has actually no personal guilt at all, but he just comes into the world, or she comes into the world, without that gift of sanctifying grace mm. and that, uh, that is necessary to be fully oriented to God. That's something that's given to us in baptism. Uh, but again, Romans 5 is kind of the beginning of the conversation, and then all the other Christ-Adam parallels that you get in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians, for example. Brian, thanks so much uh, for your email. Stephen is watching us today on YouTube. He is in uh, Utah, I believe, here. It says, uh, what is the Catholic doctrine or view on the Old Testament? I have just heard stories. I have heard Catholics say that these are just stories. Adam and Eve did not really exist, etc., while others say it is true, but, etc. Any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. So the Catholic doctrine on Scripture, not just on the Old Testament, is that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God um, and uh, given to the Church for its edification, right? And so when you read the Bible, you're reading the Word of God. Uh, but that doesn't get you everywhere you need to go, because how then do you understand the text? How does it function in the life of the Church? What kind of conclusions are we meant to draw from it? And there is a point of view that is not Catholic that I would call fundamentalist. And the fundamentalist point of view is that you take every text of Scripture at face value, prima facie, if you will, uh, as the man on the street would understand the language in their straightforward grammatical denotative sense, right? And that that's just what the text means, and that infallibility or inerrancy such as it is applies at that level, so that, uh, you know, if the text of Scripture says that God uh, sent a flood that covered the whole world and killed all, you know, every man, woman, child, and beast, except those preserved on the Ark of Noah, then, then that is the, the geological history of planet Earth, and you should read it at, at that level. Th that's really never been the way the Catholic Church has read the Old Testament, uh, and it's not the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. Um, so, you know, St. Paul, for example, looking at the book of Genesis, says that the stories of the patriarchs, like the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, is in fact an allegory for the Christian church. Hmm. That's what St. Paul says in the New Testament about the Old Testament. He says that uh, the account of the Exodus and the journey through the desert um, is a typology for uh, conversion to Christ. This is the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. Even Jesus wasn't a fundamentalist, if you will, about the Old Testament. When the Pharisees came to him and said, can a man divorce his wife for any reason, which is exactly what the Pentateuch said he could do, mm -hmm. Christ says no, and they said, well, how can you say that since the Bible, the Bible says otherwise? And Christ's response was, Moses, not God, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. So even Jesus seems to put some daylight between the divine will and the actual text of the Bible and interjects the personality and the personal judgment of the character of Moses, right? And we could go on with some other illustrations. So it's not the fundamentalist way of looking at the Bible. So how then do Catholics look at the Old Testament? Have to get to that after the break. All right, sit tight, uh, Stephen. We'll continue that on the other side. We'll also talk with Aaron in Hastings, Michigan. And we've got a line open for you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986.
Welcome back. It is called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you have a question for us, or perhaps you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, well, here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were tackling a question from Stephen uh, watching us on YouTube. And to re, uh, restate that, he says, what is the Catholic doctrine or view on the Old Testament. I have heard Catholics say that it's just stories and that Adam and Eve did not really exist, etc., while others say, well, yes, it is true, but dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah, I think so. I began by, uh, before the break, talking about the fact that even the New Testament itself uh, seems to think there's more going on in the Old Testament than just a straightforward, denotative, grammatical, historical, literal discussion of events, mm-hmm. right? That the New Testament doesn't read the Old Testament that way, um, but rather sees the Old Testament as a, as a kind of allegory for the Christian church, for Christ, and for the conversion of life to, to, to the virtuous path. And that is, in fact, since that's the biblical doctrine of the Bible, it's what the early church fathers believed. So probably one of the greatest biblical commentators in antiquity is a man named Origen of Alexandra, who, who died in around oh, 251, 252, so 3rd century. And uh, Origen wrote uh, voluminously a lot of biblical commentaries, but he wrote a kind of a, uh, an introduction to Catholic theology, if you will, called On First Principles. In the beginning, he, he sets out to sort of summarize the, the main contours of the Christian faith, and he, it's, you know, the things that you're familiar with. He says, well, you know, there's, we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Church, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And he says, and oh, and oh, by the way, we also believe in the spiritual sense of the Bible. And he says, this is, this is the Catholic confession. All Catholics believe, this is what makes a Catholic versus somebody else. All Catholics believe that beyond the literal words of the text, there is a spiritual sense of the Bible that is the real meat of the thing, the real heart, the real value. And ultimately, the spiritual sense is the, that reading of Scripture that converts us to Christ. And uh, in subsequent tradition, the Church has broken that down really into three parts. There is what is called the moral sense of the Bible, which is you read the Bible uh, uh, for what it teaches you and what it affects in you by way of moral transformation or, 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 or moral catechesis. Uh-huh. And that, that can be effective in your life, whether or not the events that it describes um, are historical or not. Uh, take an example, the life of Job, for, for instance. Um, it matters little to the message of Job that there was a man named Job. I mean, you could read it as a parable just as well as a history. Sure. And honestly, it really doesn't make a hill of beans difference. You walk away from the narrative knowing, well, I, the, I, I'm being admonished here to confront the problem of suffering like Job, like Job did, Right. And, and not much hangs on the question of historicity. Right. Um, the, uh, other cases, maybe more hangs on that, but not at all. Beyond the moral sense, there's something called the anagogical sense of the Bible. And that is the, the reading of the Bible that elevates your heart to the consideration of eternal things, to the longing for eternal life, uh, to, uh, to transcendence. And again, that, that, that can be affected in you um, regardless of the historical truth of the narrative. And anyone who has ever read The Lord of the Rings, for example, or The Chronicles of Narnia, and, and you walk away and you're just sort of overawed by the moral character of somebody like yeah. Frodo Baggins or whatnot, sure. and you feel taken out of yourself by all the, the magic and the fantasy and, and the romance and by Frodo's moral heroism— um, to read the Bible with that same sensibility is to read it with an eye to the anagogical sense. 
Uh, and then, of course, there's the allegorical sense of the Bible. And this is, this is the most profound, and it's reading the Old Testament as it points to or indicates the person of Jesus. And as we already indicated from the first half of this question, the New Testament finds types and allegories of Christ in very unexpected places in the Old Testament, right? And, uh, but this is, this is reading the Old Testament specifically as it points us to the person of Jesus, okay? And so that's, that's the way the Catholic Church has always read the Bible and says you must read the Bible, that the, that the, the spiritual sense is where the real meat and potatoes of biblical interpretation falls. Now, uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to the historical question, historical questions, because they are about history, are, yes, the Bible can tell us things about history, but history is, is sort of, it's the common property of the human race, right? It's not, the Catholics don't have a lock on history. <laughs> and so you can use historical methods to answer historical questions about what took place in the past. And, um, and you know, so, for example, if an ancient history writer writing the story of Israel relies upon conventions of ancient historiography— which, say, departs somewhat from the standards of modern newspaper reporting, right? Yes. That's not false. And, uh, you know, it's only false if you, um, if you bring certain criteria to bear that are foreign to the nature of the genre, mm-hmm. right? And so recognizing the genre of literature is essential for proper interpretation, right? Um, and uh, so you, you can't really answer the question— is it all, you know, historically true in the sense that if I took a camera crew back to, you know, say, 8th century Israel or 10th century Israel and recorded what I, what I get the picture that I'm getting in the Bible, it really—you have to kind of go text by text mm. and ask yourself that question. Now, when it comes to Genesis specifically, Origen, who I mentioned earlier, lived in the 3rd century, uh, I might point out, you know, a good 1,500 years before Charles Darwin, right, a good 1,500 years before modern geology, said— uh, it is obvious that the that the Garden of Eden narrative cannot be taken exactly at face value for the blindingly obvious reason that God doesn't have feet. <laughs> and since the text depicts God as walking in the garden, God doesn't walk. God's omnipresent and a spirit, right? So there's, there's some literary condescension going on mm-hmm. here, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and for, for Origen, at least, the question was far less significant than what is the spiritual sense of the text in question, which is about the, de- the, the spiritual destiny of the human person in relationship to God. Wow. There you go. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's uh, start out here with Aaron in Hastings, Michigan, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Aaron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, the question I have, um, I'm sure kind of struggling because I am guilty of double dipping, as Patrick Madrid would say. Um, how do you do we explain that the Catholic Church is the true church? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So a major part of the argument here for Catholicism um, is historical continuity with Christ and the Apostles, Right. Um, because the the other contenders for authentic Christianity uh, all have some human founder, right? So the Lutherans would date themselves to, say, Martin Luther in the 1520s. Mm -hmm. Uh, Calvinists would 
date the origin of their belief system to John Calvin, who's, you know, 1540s. Mm-hmm. Um, Baptists would date their community to early 17th century to a man named by the name of John Smith. Uh, Mormons obviously dated to uh, the Joseph Smith's alleged discoveries in 19th century America. Uh, Campbell Stoneites uh, date their uh, religious revolution to the thoughts and activities of Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, also 19th century. Uh, so who founded the Catholic Church? Well, I mean, you, you, can, you can ask Google, you can ask Siri, you know, ask Alexa, they'll tell you. Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church, that the Catholic Church is the Christian community that is in direct historic continuity with the Church founded by Christ and the Apostles. And in the Scriptures, Jesus says to St. Peter, you're Peter, and on this rock, Peter means rock, he says, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Christ has the intent to establish an ecclesial organization, a group called out from the world, a group that you can be admitted to or excluded from. Christ has in mind a visible organization uh, with a promise that he would accompany that church to the end of the age. So if you if you believe the Christian message at all, if you believe the testimony of Christ, we need to look for what is that ecclesial body founded by Jesus that he promised to accompany forever against which the gates of hell would not prevail. And what you find is, well, there's only one man left standing in the room, you know, and that that would be the Catholic Church. And and so the the fundamental doctrines of Catholicism, you know, beyond the questions of salvation and so forth, when it comes to the question of the nature of the Church, the constitution of the Church, a Church founded by Christ, uh, with with, uh, apostles, with bishops as their successor, uh, with a kind of uh, universal mandate and, and Catholicity of scope that all Christians throughout the world are bound together in this one confession of faith. We, we find all of those elements in the first century. We find them in the second century, which is where the word Catholic first emerges to mean universal in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch. Um, we find them in the third century. You find them in the fourth century. And lo and behold, you can find them in continuity down to the present day, and that's and there's the Catholic Church. Now, that that by itself is a fairly compelling evidence. Beyond that, I, there's all other kinds of tests that you can bring to bear. So you can look at Catholic doctrine, what the Catholic Church says about the world, right? And one of the things that Catholic faith teaches is that um, there are no double truths. There's not something that can be true in the faith but false to reason. There isn't something that can be true to reason and false to the faith. If it's true, it's true. Like the, the, the same God that made the world, the world redeemed the world, right? The same rationality that he put into the world into our minds at the beginning of time uh, is the same divine mind that redeems us. And so we, we look for a harmonization of faith and reason, right? So if, if, if somebody tells you something manifestly absurd, you know what isn't it true, just by virtue of being manifestly absurd. Sure, right? sure. And so you, you can begin to rule out some other contenders for, say, authentic Christianity by that criteria. And, and I hate to pick on the guy, but he makes himself kind of a target. Martin Luther, for example, uh, would say that, that reason is a whore and the worst enemy of truth, right? And that, that or Tertullian, who said that he believed something such and such because it was absurd to do so, right? So absurdism uh, is ruled out, mm. right, by the criteria of... You know, eggs are eggs, which is what the Catholic faith says. Um, and and so when you when you s- sit within the framework of the Catholic worldview, uh, you find that it has a, a humanizing effect, a, an elevating effect upon the intellect, that your engagement with the rest of reality is thereby enhanced. 
And you can see that playing out in history as Catholicism has brought things like respect for human dignity. Go back and read the ancient Greeks. Go read the ancient Romans. They had no concept of human dignity as such. They, they believed that certain people were dignified and certain people were base slaves. Mm-hmm. And, and some people were despicable just in, ver- in virtue of having been born slaves. Right? That they deserved what they got because they got it. Right? That, that kind of reasoning. And, uh, and so it would be a perfectly legitimate activity to throw men and women together in an arena and, and rejoice while watching them be eaten by lions or, or to watch them rend one another you know, to death with swords uh, in the gladiatorial games or to reduce 40% of the Roman population to slavery and think mm-hmm. nothing of that. Yeah. And the Catholic faith came on board and said, actually, no, every human being has dignity. Every human being has worth. Uh, even the poor have dignity. That was an absurd thought to the Romans. Women have dignity. shouldn't be forced to marry against their will, for example. Uh, they should be, have the right to dispose of their bodies the way they wish. Mm-hmm. And so things that we take for granted today in the world, like the doctrine of universal human rights, mm-hmm. like the rights of women, um, uh, like, uh, uh, like universal education and health care. I mean, these are Catholic ideas. They didn't exist in the world until the Catholic Church brought them into the world. Um, uh, the foundation of the medieval university, which stands behind the scientific revolution, right, with tra- has transformed all of humanity. I mean, these things have Catholicism at their root. And so you can, you can look to the teaching of Christ, you can look to its continuity through time, and then you can also look to the effect of that teaching on world history um, as, uh, as inherently benevolent, as beneficent. And, and, you know, w- what kind of universe do I want to live in? One where reality is intelligible and good? Uh, or one where reality is unintelligible and absurd. And the Catholic faith gives us the ground to live in the former rather than the latter. Do appreciate your call, Aaron. Hope that's helpful for you. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We do have a couple of lines open if you want to call right now. Let me tell you about a new book now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It's called War on Virtue. How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream by Bill Donahue. In this new book, uh, Bill Donahue explains how the ruling class is systematically undermining the virtues that have built Western civilization, with radical elites rejecting the idea of personal sin and replacing traditional values. Dr. Donahue offers a common-sense solution to restoring the virtues in the workplace and defending universal morality. In the book, he exposes the hard-hitting truth about the dangers of multiculturalism, the uh, Blame America campaign, Black Lives Matter movement, critical race theory. Through Bill's uh, incisive research and insights, he exposes how public officials are failing even the highest achievers and how the victim mentality they propagate is hurting those who need the help the most. It's a wonderful book. Do check it out. Uh, It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Again, it's called War on Virtue. Do check it out, EWTNRC.com. Let's uh, quickly go to Bonnie now, a first-time caller in Los Angeles or Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Bonnie, what's on your mind today? Hi. I would like to know, we used to, when we said the glory, glory be to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make the sign of the cross mm-hmm. on us, and we don't do that anymore. I was wondering why we don't do it, and I was wondering, is it okay to still do? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So as far as the last thing is concerned, uh, you can, of course, make the sign of the cross 
anytime you want to make it as often as you want to make it, right? And whether it's specifically indicated in the rubrics for mass or not, um, there's there's no reason for you to refrain from doing it, sure. right? Um, now, I'm not an expert personally in the question of the revision of the liturgy, but one of the motivations in revising the liturgy was to simplify forms, all right, and to encourage uh, new forms of lay participation in the Mass. Bonnie, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, Robert in Texas, Randy, a first-time caller from Canton, Michigan. Lines are open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN for the Tuesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion. Stay with us. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN with Dr. David Anders. Uh, we do have a couple of lines open. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to several members of our EWTN radio family. Ludington Catholic Radio, that is in Ludington, Michigan, celebrating their seventh year with EWTN. Also, Huntsville Catholic Radio in Huntsville, Texas, celebrating their 20th year with us and... Two Hearts Catholic Radio in Walla Walla, Washington, celebrating 22 years with EWTN. Congratulations to Father Wayne Wheeler in Ludington, Raymond Scheel in Huntsville, and Rod and Kimberly Fazari in Walla Walla. From all your friends here at EWTN. Very glad to uh, give a little shout-out to our longtime partners there, uh, coast to coast. Let's go now to uh, Robert in Texas, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Robert. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, I actually have two questions today. Uh, the first one is, why did the Catholics change the Sabbath from the last day of the week to Sunday, the first day of the week? And the second question is, on Matthew 23, 9, uh, which says, no one shall call anyone father, why do we continue to call the priest father? Yeah, thanks. I can answer both of those. I really appreciate it. So with respect to the Sabbath, I think it's really important to point out that the Catholic Church absolutely did not move the Sabbath. Did not move. The Sabbath remains Saturday, the, the last day of the week. So uh, Jews in the synagogue continue to correctly worship according to the dictates of their conscience on Saturday, right? And to refrain from work more, pre more, more precisely. Right. Um, so what Catholics do is uh, we, didn't, we didn't kick the Sabbath one day later in the calendar. We instituted a new feast, the Feast of Sunday, the Feast of the Lord's Resurrection. And you'll note, I'm sure, from sacred scripture, it's all the Gospels are agreed that the day on which Christ rose from the dead was Sunday. And on Holy Thursday, when Christ instituted the Mass, the Eucharist, and he gave the command to do this, in memory of me, where do we find the first post-resurrection Mass, as it were, uh, or at least an intimation of it? And well, that'd be Luke chapter 24, which emphatically took place on a Sunday <coughs> when Christ met the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And of course, they walk along. They don't know who he is. As he explains the scriptures to them, their hearts are burning within them. When do they come to recognize Christ? in the breaking of the bread, when he sits down at the table and takes it and gives thanks and breaks it and gives it to them, which of obviously is a reminiscence of what happened on Holy Thursday. And at that moment, the disciples, of course, their eyes are opened and they recognize Christ. And it's as if St. Luke wants to say to us, this is where you will now find Christ. Mm -hmm. You will find him in the breaking of the bread 
as he promised, which first celebrated on this very first Sunday, uh, uh, the same day that our Lord rose from the dead, uh, which is why the church has the pattern, had the pattern from the very beginning of meeting together on the first day of the week, that is to say Sunday, for the breaking of the bread. You'll read about that in Acts chapter 20, for example. And so we have continued that practice for 2,000 years, the one instituted by Christ and the apostles, of celebrating the breaking of the bread and the apostles' teaching and prayer together in commemoration of the Lord's resurrection on the day that he rose. And we emphatically do not understand that to be the Jewish Sabbath commandment. And in fact, early Christian writers, like the writer of the Didache, for example, were emphatic that Christian rites are not Jewish rites. They are different rites. They're not the same thing. Now, there is a sense in which Sunday worship is a kind of fulfillment of the Jewish Sabbath, uh, but it is not the Jewish Sabbath. And, uh, and I would also add that if you go back and read the Sabbath commandment, the Sabbath commandment, whether you find the version of Exodus or the version of Deuteronomy, says nothing about worship and the offering of sacrifice. It is a command to res- refrain from labor. But the Christian Feast of Sunday is precisely about prayers and offerings and sacrifices. It's a, it's a, it's a celebration of worship wherein we offer the body and blood of Christ to God, which is most definitely not what the Jewish Sabbath was about. Now, are Christians obligated to keep the Jewish Sabbath? Again, the New Testament is very clear on this. Colossians chapter 2, St. Paul says, Don't let anybody judge you with respect to a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, when anybody jumps on the Catholic Church and says, Well, you guys are bad for your Sunday observances because you don't keep the Sabbath, well, they are violating Colossians chapter 2, which says, Don't judge anyone because of a Sabbath day. Yeah. And uh, St. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, that the whole of the Jewish law um, was a tutor, a kind of pedagogue, to uh, a preparation to lead us to Christ, after which time such things are not necessary for those who have faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's literally no reason for us to keep the Jewish Sabbath. You know, we're not practicing Jews, right? right. right. Um, now, you know, the early apostles actually were practicing Jews, so they did both. They would go to synagogue on Saturday, and they'd mm-hmm. offer prayers, mm-hmm. and then they would meet with the Christian community on Sunday and for the breaking of the bread, the celebration of the Lord's resurrection. Well, there you go. And what about his question um, about um, uh, calling no man father? Yeah, so in Matthew chapter 23, <coughs> where Christ says, don't call anybody father, you'll, you'll note that falls in a context when he also says, don't anybody call you rabbi. Excuse me, but what did the apostles call Jesus? Mm-hmm. They called him rabbi. Right? They called him teacher. Um, I also note that Matthew 23 doesn't say anything about the Catholic priesthood. He, he doesn't condemn it. He doesn't forbid it. He, he just doesn't mention it. it doesn't, the Catholic priesthood doesn't come into the discussion. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to think he has Catholic priesthood particularly in view here. So if you took the words of Christ at face value literally, you would have to conclude that it is wrong for me to refer to my biological father as father. And yet, I've never heard anyone criticize their neighbor or themselves because they called their dad, dad. I think we all recognize that's not what he has in view. Right. What does he have in view is rather, don't, don't be a respecter of persons. Now, I should add, the, the, the Pope Francis, our very own pope, says the same thing about the Catholic priesthood. If someone wants to become a priest because they want to be called father, 
we should kick them out of seminary immediately. Don't seek the head place at the table. Right. Seek the lowest place. Right. If a person wants to become a priest because they aspire to, uh, you know, becoming pastor of the, the big bucks parish in the diocese, they should not be a priest, right? If they become a priest because they, they, they like wearing clericals and, and cassocks and having people greet them on the street corners and say father to them, then they should not be a priest, so right? You, yeah. nor, nor should Catholic lay people be superstitious about the personalities of their priests and uh, as if the mere wearing of a cassock or the act of ordination um, preserved from them from the, the normal kind of human foibles and sins, particularly those of pride. That, that's the sense in which we are to take the Father command. And that holds not only for priests, but for politicians, for parents, for school teachers, mm. for Catholic radio hosts, <laughs> for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, does Christ's command prohibit us from using the term father as a term of endearment for a religious leader? Well, if it does, then it would seem that the Apostle Paul violated that because he refers to himself as the Corinthians' father in the faith, mm-hmm. that he begat them spiritually, and he refers to Timothy as his spiritual son. And even the prophet Elisha says to Elijah, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And there you go. Robert, thank you so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Texas. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go from Robert to Randy, a first-time caller in Canton, Michigan, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hey there, Randy. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, well, hello, Dr. Anders. Um, what I'd like to know is um, in Luke 18, uh, chapter 18, there's the parable about the persistent widow. And it goes on, and then at the end, there's this line that seems almost like Christ is thinking out loud. It doesn't seem to belong to the parable, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I was wondering if, is he suggesting maybe when he comes again, there'll only be a remnant of faithful, uh, similar to what the Jews had when they came back to Jerusalem after their exile? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I- I'll be honest with you. I, uh, you know, I'm, I am not by training a biblical scholar, and so... To really do justice to the question, I would want to think about that in the larger context of Luke's Gospel and try to line that up against other expectations that Christ has, eschatological expectations, within the Gospel of Luke specifically. And I just haven't thought that thought yet, mm. right? I haven't haven't actually done that. So I think the answer that you give is a possible one. I think it's plausible. Um, uh, is that necessarily the right way to take the text? You know, honestly, if I were very curious about this of myself, I would begin by digging into some of the critical commentaries, you know, to, to see what kind of interpretations have been given for that throughout Catholic history. I wish I could tell you that I had all those at the tip of my fingers. I just don't right now. Randy, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN tonight on Catholic Answers Live at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern. We have two hours of open forum Q&A first with Tim Staples and then with Carlo Broussard. Do check it out. It's the exclusive radio home of Catholic Answers Live, and that would be EWTN tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Kirk in Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hello, Kirk. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, I had a, a question about uh, praying for intentions to um, saints and angels, whether they could hear your thoughts or whether you had to physically speak your intentions out loud. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, you know, angels and saints 
presently in their current condition don't have ears. And so the vibration of sound waves doesn't make a hill of beans difference to them because they don't have ears. They have no mechanism whereby they could discern like the difference between a vocal vocalized prayer and an eternal prayer. Yeah. The only way a prayer could be made known to a saint or an angel is by the Spirit of God making it known to them in their interior life. And so the value of praying out loud is not for the benefit of the angel or the saint. It is for the benefit of the one doing the praying, because prayer out loud can have a different sort of psychological effect on the one uttering the prayer. Uh, it can focus the mind, can elevate the heart, uh, sometimes in ways that, that silent prayer does not. Uh, but of course, silent prayer is perfectly acceptable for those reasons. Appreciate your call from Cincinnati. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, Christine in Chicago checks in. Uh, she's got a question and a comment here. The question is, I'm visually impaired. May I paint on my rosary to make it easier for me to identify parts of it? And then the comment, there were only early Christians. There were no denominations back in the day and no Catholics until the 6th century. Yeah, thank you. First of all, with respect to the rosary, paint away. Have at it. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, with respect to the second one, which doesn't seem to have been a question that seems to be an assertion, yeah. um, I think that someone who made that claim would just be ignorant of history. They just haven't, haven't read the, the data on this. I mean, there were all kinds of different groupings, uh, denominations, if you will, if you want to use that terminology, uh, set apart in ancient Christianity, many of them mentioned in the text of the Bible. So St. Paul deals with this explicitly in 1 Corinthians when he says, you know, you people in Corinth have made parties for yourself according to your preference for your favorite apostle. Some of you call yourselves disciples of Paul, others of Peter, others of Apollos. Mm -hmm. And he says, you shouldn't do that. You should, we'd all should be one in Christ, but, but you're becoming sectarians. Um, elsewhere in the New Testament, you know, Jesus in the book of Revelation names a bunch of specific groups that have set themselves apart from the Church Catholic. The Nicolaitans is one that he mentions specifically. Uh, the, gospel, the Epistle of John describes an aberrant theological viewpoint that historians call docetism, which is a party apart, of course. Um, so you could just, uh, the, the, you know, the, the Judaizing heresy of, uh, of uh, it's mentioned and uh, censured in, in Galatians, would be another party apart. It's very much a, mm -hmm. a ecclesiastical party within ancient Christianity that was you know, apart from the, the Catholic faithful. Um, you know, in the second century, <coughs> you get the various Gnostic sects, the Valentinians, for example, the Marcionites. Um, you know, later on, you get the Manichaeans, um, the Donatists. I mean, I mean, the, the list of, of uh, denominations, if you will, in ancient Christianity is nearly endless. I mean, there, there's so many of them. So I don't know how a person can make the claim that there was an undifferentiated mass of Christians of goodwill and, and no ecclesiastical or party or denominational divisions. That's just, that's just false to history. It's just wrong, right? Um, and with respect to there being no Catholics until the 6th, well, the term Catholic comes to us from the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, who was a third bishop of Antioch after St. Peter, <coughs> writing right around the turn of the 1st into the 2nd century. And, of course, Although he was the first to use the word, he's certainly not the first to identify the reality, which is, what do we mean by the reality of the Catholic Church? We mean a determinate form of doctrine and practice that unites a visible organization, conscious of its organizational integrity, 
uh, united to the apostles in sacred tradition and apostolic succession, and one throughout the known world. All right, and that reality is clearly described within the pages of the New Testament. Uh, whether or not they use the word Catholic, which, of course, as I mentioned, is a very early 2nd century provenance. So I think this is a misinformed objection. Christine, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Joe is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Joe says, can the body and the spirit not be on the same level and therefore the person struggles? Well, you just laid your finger not only on the Catholic doctrine, but the doctrine of almost all Hellenistic philosophy. Well, for that matter, almost all Axial Age philosophy, whether whether Christian, Greek, Hindu, uh, you know, Indian or Chinese. I mean, this is this. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Christ said the flesh is willing. Excuse me. Got that backwards. The spirit is willing and the body is weak. Yes. Uh, St. Paul, of course, describes this inner torment in uh, Romans chapter seven. So the idea that that we could have a rational conception of the good of human life and yet through our various weaknesses, in particular the clinging of the flesh, be drawn away from the rational good that we recognize to be a good. Yeah, that's integral to Catholic spiritual theology. Okay. Joe, thanks for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Carl says, I am a non-religious person. How is religious worship a good thing to do as a means of having a relationship, and why is worship virtuous? Yeah, thank you. So it depends on what you mean by worship, right? Um, Because there is such a thing as superstitious worship, which is not good and is, in fact, deforming to the human person and uh, and deforms our dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, The worship that is virtuous, St. James says, is helping widows and orphans in their distress, or as St. Paul puts it, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual act of worship. So that is the that is the worship in spirit and in truth that the Father desires, namely the conformity of the human person to the image and likeness of Christ, right? The the growth in virtue and aspiring after a holy life. That that's the true worship. And absent that, uh, the mere movement of the body um, uh, avails for nothing with respect to the soul and to the ultimate good of the human person. Uh, now, it is possible to construct rites and rituals that are ordered to that transformation of the human person in virtue. And that, we contend, is mm-hmm. the, the aim and purpose of the Mass, which Christ instituted. Christ instituted the Mass, and he said, do this in memory of me. Um, if you look at the elements of the Mass, of course, Christ takes bread and wine and says, this is my body and this is my blood, and you are to do this in memory of me. The Mass becomes the memorial of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as we seek to imitate the character of Christ, who willingly went to his own martyrdom in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful, obedience to God and love of neighbor, we make central to our public ritual the reenactment of that act so that we can more deeply assimilate it into our own personalities, right? And so the like habituating ourselves to a sacrificial mode of worship to inculcate within our consciousness a sacramental mode of life, right? That's the, that's the essential logic behind it. Now, it is possible to go through the motions, as it were, without interior transformation. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 
believe it's 2211, I think. Could be wrong about that, but it's in that neighborhood. Describes that. It describes the Catholic who goes to the rites and ceremonies, but without attention to the transformation of his interior life. And it calls that kind of Catholic superstitious. Mm. Right? So you can't, you cannot divorce the outward rite from the inner transformation. Pope Pius twelfth wrote an encyclical on this called Mediator Dei. And he said, we have the outward sacrifice, the outward rite, and the inward. And of the two, writes the Pope, it is the inward that ultimately matters. There you go. Appreciate that, Carl. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Chandler. Do Catholics believe in the double procession of the Holy Spirit? Um, uh, yeah, all, all day long and literally twice on Sundays, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. That the, the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, filio que, and yes. the Son. Yeah. yeah, so that's it. Very clear. Chandler, thanks so much for your question. Uh, here's one now from... Beth, and, and we kind of touched on this earlier in the program. How do Catholics understand Noah's flood as a real event or as myth? Um, yes. So it depends on which Catholics you ask, right? I mean, there. Are, I mean, uh, there are certainly some Catholics in history who have uh, who have believed this to describe a literal historic geological event. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a very minority position today, and. Um, and uh, would not in any way be characteristic of magisterial teaching uh, or of Catholic academic theology, right? And it would, is by no means necessary as an act. I mean, Catholic is not obligated to make a profession of faith, for example, in the existence of a worldwide deluge. And there are several reasons for that. One of them is that um, uh, modern geology doesn't confirm the idea of there having been a worldwide flood. And so if you know, if the sciences deliver something to the intellect as true, yeah. and we can rely on that with a fair degree of certainty, then the rational response to that is to accept truth as true. And so the Catholic faith never demands the sacrifice of the intellect. In fact, it demands the purification of the intellect to make us oriented more towards truth, not less towards truth. Um, secondly, uh, the Catholic way of understanding Scripture has always understood that the, the primary significance of the Bible is to reorient our moral and spiritual lives to Christ. It's what we call the spiritual sense of the Bible. And uh, Catholic interpreters from the very beginning have recognized that there are biblical texts that taken at face value uh, can't be, well, they can't be read, read straightforward or they can't be taken at face value. Right, and I mentioned earlier in the show, Origin of Alexandria, third-century Catholic theologian. So, it's like, you can't take the the Genesis narrative exactly as written, because it says that God walked in a garden when God doesn't have feet. Yeah. Right, Gregory of Nyssa, in his Life of Moses, uh, says the same things about elements of the Exodus story that they have to be read in a spiritual allegorical way and can't be taken in their sort of grammatical, historical, denotative, literal sense for a variety of reasons. Um, and the book of First Peter in the New Testament, when it looks at Noah's flood, says this is an allegory for Christian baptism. I mean, it tells us explicitly that that's what the Noah uh, event is about. It's mm -hmm. it's it's about the purification from sin, right? Even as the in the story, 
God purifies the world of the wicked, right? So in Christian baptism, the soul is purified of sin, right? And that's the that's the, the significance that it has for us. Not, you know, if, not so that I can go digging around on Mount Ararat in hopes of, <laughs> you know, uh, getting a you know a, a cut rate deal on a big boat. <laughs> there you go, Beth. Thanks so much for your question. We'll close with this one from Sydney. Why do Catholics believe that Mary is the Queen of Heaven? Um, right. So uh, this would come from the kind of imagery that we find in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, where Mary is depicted with a crown of, of you know, moon and stars over her head and so forth. Uh, so that imagery. Uh, also, the, uh, the parallelism between Mary and Bathsheba, uh, the queen mother of mm. the Solomonic Empire, and the uh, the Psalms that are written in praise of uh, uh, of of the royal queen in the Davidic court. Okay, well, I guess we have time for one more quick one here, and I know you can do this in uh, what fifty seconds. This is from Nat. Why do you think Protestantism isn't the true faith? Internally inconsistent, ahistorical. Uh, and irrational, and wow. and and fundamentally existentially unsatisfying. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I I, I, I have fifteen seconds left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. You can riff so, on that. So I mean, the, <laughs> the the fundamental contention of the Protestant faith is that Scripture teaches a doctrine that Scripture emphatically doesn't teach. Right? Luther said, or his his heirs said that justification by faith alone was the article in which the church stands or falls, and that's a big problem because no one before Luther ever thought that, and St. Paul didn't either, right? So it's, it's based on a profound misinterpretation of Paul's writings. The second major uh, premise of Protestantism is the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is internally self-contradictory, right? Because the it holds sola scriptura as an article of faith, and yet the Bible itself doesn't teach it, but teaches a different doctrine about religious authority. So, I mean, the, the, the doctrine collapses in on itself, and, uh, and there's a fundamental irrationalism built into it that L- Luther was overt about, that reason is the worst enemy of truth and, and so forth. And that, that kind of voluntarist notion of God's will and its relationship to reality is profoundly dehumanizing and stands behind, I believe, gross instances of injustice throughout Protestant history. So all kinds of reasons. You bet. Nat, thanks so much for your email. Dr. David Andrews, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday. We hope that you're with us at the same time tomorrow right here on EWTN. On behalf of uh, Michael, Matt, and Rich, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. We will see you then. Have a great day. God bless.